how many things can you focus on at once? And what impact does living in an image and screen-based culture have on your ability to focus not only your mind, but also how all these images impact your ability to spiritually thrive? You don't want to miss this episode with Desiring God's senior writer, Tony Rinke. Stay tuned for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Well, welcome to Basecamp Live. How are you doing, Kelly? I'm great, Davies. Thanks for asking. Hey, before we get any further, yeah, people need to stick around at the end of this great interview, which is really hitting very close to home for both of us right now. But we've got a climber, uh, a woman named Caitlin from Tacoma, Washington, Cordero School up there. She's got some great things that she wants to share with us. We've been pushing this climber series. We've got somebody coming in. So we get to the end of this, and it looks like there's still some minutes left on the podcast. Don't shut the podcast off. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's great. Hang on. Dave. Davies. What? Uh, what? Yeah. Uh, Dave, hey, are we Davies, recording? We're doing the podcast. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry, Kelly. I was ever trying to get something else done while you were saying all that. Um, yeah. Stay here. Sorry. You know, I actually, that's probably a good reminder that multitasking doesn't really work. We mm-hmm. hear this all the time in our culture, don't we? That, you know, I, yeah, sometimes I've, I might keep saying things about my own kids, but you know, it's interesting. A lot of times uh, teenagers today will watch a movie while they're on their phone. Yep. And, and I hear this all the time from teachers in the classrooms. Well, and our, our, everybody thinks they can multitask. And you really can't. There's an article, uh, there are many of them, Psycho- Psychology Today article, 40% less efficiency when you multitask. Mm. So I, I think it's a good lead into our guest today. Uh, Tony Rinke is the senior uh, writer for um, Desiring God, John Piper's Great Ministry. Mm. And he's written a brand new book appropriately called Competing Spectacles. And the idea is just that we live in this hyper overstimulated image based world. So true. So true. And it, this is such a poignant moment. And we're joking about this, but literally, as we're sitting here preparing for this podcast, we're both multitasking and realizing we're not being efficient because we're not really focusing on what we need to be focusing on. Yeah. And, and ultimately, the bottom line to the subtitle of the book treasuring Christ and the media age. So I think a lot of times we think in terms of like my kids and smartphones and technology, but really what we're talking about ultimately is this erosion of our ability to focus because you can only really pay attention to one thing at a time. Right. And, and, and ultimately I won't give away the whole podcast. What a great interview. I hope everyone goes out and buys his book. It was super helpful and convicting. So let's jump into this interview with Tony Rinke. Let's do it. Welcome to Basecamp Live. I'm on the line today with Tony Rinke. He is uh, a senior writer for the Desiring God Group. How are you doing, Tony? Good. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I am so uh, excited about your book uh, entitled Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ and the Media Age. Um, I, I, let's just jump right in. What are competing spectacles? <laughs> competing spectacles. We're not talking about glasses. Yeah, I was worried. We're talking yeah. <laughs> We're talking about uh, the things that vie for our attention. So a spectacle is a moment of time of varying length in which a, like a collective gaze is focused on some specific image or event or uh, a moment. A spectacle is something that captures human attention. It's an instant in which our eyes and our brains focus and fixate on something visual. Um, and specifically now in the media age, fixed on something that's projected at us is yeah. typically how it happens on a screen. 
So that's my definition of what a spectacle is. It's as dull as dishwater as far as a definition. It's really a uh, yeah. banal definition, but that's essentially yeah. what a spectacle is. It could be a, a viral tweet. It could be a blockbuster movie. It could be a... Um, a pro, you know, the president slips up, you know, slip yeah. of tongue on national TV. Yeah. It could be, it could be all sorts of different things. Right. You know, it could be a kiss cam at a, at a, uh, at a basketball game. I, you, you name it. It's just, it's any, I, I know you quote Huxley in the book and you, in the quote where he says, man's uh, man almost has almost infinite appetite for distraction. So it's just yes. basically we're distracted people. And yeah, we're, we, we don't, we don't hate spectacles. Yeah. <laughs> we welcome them and we want them. And yeah. that's probably so, the heart of the challenge. So, and, and then a part of this book is part of your own journey. So there were, I guess, habits that you discovered in yourself that were concerning about how you were living in a world that's so distracting and yet trying to live for Christ. What helped me understand kind of how you went this on this journey yourself and how the book came out of that? Yeah, so I wrote 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, which was a diagnostic of my own heart and how I use my smartphone and how I become addicted to my smartphone over 10 years of of. Uh, abuse really and how that affected my family my children my job my focus my reading attention also all those things this book comes out of more thoughtful reflection on how i've sort of over over taken in too many of those visual spectacles in the digital age and not drawn careful limits around how much i feed my eyes and what kind of things i feed my eyes and so it is a very personal thing coming to terms with, okay, when is it right to go and watch uh, an Avengers movie together as a family? And when is it right to keep the TV off and the screens off? And how do you balance the detox uh, from digital media? And so this book was really written for me. To be honest, like I wanted this kind of a book to read when I was on digital detox. I never really found the right book to do what I wanted to do. And so competing spectacles is my attempt to really in just 150 pages come alongside an adult or a teen or a college student who wants to take three, four, five days away from their screens and just meditate on what does it mean to be a Christian in this age? Wow. This book is for them in that yeah. moment. And we're going to get after the break, we'll get into the what are the remedies for that. Um, and I think mm-hmm. for some, it'll be like chopping your right hand off to take a three day digital yeah. detox, but right. just for, for a moment, continue to unpack a bit. Cause you're, it's, I think sometimes we think in terms of just the ratings, like it's like as Christians, we should be concerned and we should be about just that this piece of content over that you're really mm-hmm. stepping back and saying, it's actually just, it's the net effect of everything together. That's having this detrimental effect on our exactly. souls. Exactly. So I'm assuming in in this book that people who are reading this book are Christians who understand that there is blatantly sinful media that they should not be looking at, pornography, for example. Um, But I'm actually talking about the media that's not explicitly sinful on the surface. What do we do with that? Because even with quote-unquote good media or quote-unquote media that's not necessarily antithetical to the faith, you can fill your life with that 24-7, 365. And so that's more my my concern in, in looking at how the gospel comes in and sort of flips this fundamental reality um, that it, it, the gospel really takes unreality and makes it real and takes what we think is real and shows how unreal it really is. And so the gospel in part is the, a judgment on everything about what is solid and what is worthless, because in our world, we tend to yeah. think that what is seen is stable and certain. And we tend to think that what we cannot see Whatever is out of sight, out of mind, those things are ephemeral and unsubstantial. And the reality is, as Paul tells us, the things that are seen are transient, mm-hmm. but the things that are unseen are eternal. And uh, that that flips the reality. So it's 
it, it, it makes us aware of the things that we can't see so that we're not distracted and consumed by all the things that we can see with our physical eyes. Yeah, that's really, gosh, that's, I mean, you're competing the visible versus the invisible. And I mean, yeah. it's, you're, you're at a disadvantage right out of the gates. But I want to, you know, one question I had as I was reading through the book, I mean, clearly a lot of this is aimed at the digital media. You know, I always talk about the D-Day of June of 2007 when the smartphone came out. But you also, I was glad to see you reference back to, I mean, we are visual people. I mean, the ancient Greeks and Romans, they were, you know, they gathered in Colosseums and there were spectacle things going on then. So what's different then to now? Well, even Jesus says the the allure of riches will draw people away from the gospel. So it's that the bling of of worldly wealth has always been a spectacle that's captured people's eyes, even in Jesus's day. You can talk about the the Puritans in the 17th century. You can talk about Augustine, Tertullian, some of the early church fathers dealing with the Colosseum and spectacle and the the industry of spectacle making, which was a political thing back in in the Colosseum. We think of the gladiators. Um, if you were a politician and you wanted more and more power, that's where you found it. It was in the the theater, in the in the Colosseum, where you could orchestrate a spectacle for the mass gaze of the culture and get a thumbs up or thumbs down from the people. And you could you could build your political clout if the people enjoyed your spectacle. Right. And so it was this reality has been around for a very very long time. Yeah, because you talk in the book about how the Puritans you just mentioned it a bit, but the Puritans were were very uh, anti-theater because I guess it was again a means of, of uh, overpowering the the senses and the and the priorities in one's yeah. life I mean which seems very prudish to us but they were onto something yeah there was a lot of reasons why the Pearsons were opposed to the theater in the day you know Shakespeare had died about 16 years before uh, some of the major attacks that, that the Puritans landed on the London theater. What they were saying is these these theaters are tender boxes for uh, catastrophic fires. They are places where um, germs spread quickly. Um, of course, in an age in which you have, you know, a, a plague can wipe out a huge population. That's pretty dangerous. They also attracted uh, prostitutes, gambling, yeah. things like that. So there were a number of things sort of offstage that um, – the, the Puritans were warning against the scripts themselves oftentimes were lewd. And so they were going after yeah. that, but people like, um, you know, Richard Baxter, one of the the great Puritan minds, he was very much in favor of moral tales being told on the stage. So the Puritans were against the thought of having stage plays. They were against the, the morale that it attracted offstage and the, the immorality that was right. projected on stage. Sure. And so it's a great point. I mean, these, this, uh, lure of our eyes and of our minds has been a temptation all along, but it's just been a yeah. hundredfold more complicated in our in our age today. I, I know again, you you quote Piper, who you I'm sure that what a great thing to get to work uh, near John Piper, yeah. but his Absolutely. quote, "A steady diet of triviality shrinks the soul." I mean, I thought that was a profound mm-hmm. comment of of shrinking us away. So, I, you know, before we get a break, and we're going to come out and talk a little bit about what are some of the ways we can we can protect ourselves um, so that we do treasure Christ in a media age. Um, I, you know, I think about it in, in the classical Christian school world that we live in, a lot of what we're, we talk in terms of the idea of shaping the affections and this idea of can we continue to put things of truth, goodness, and beauty before our children so that those become the appetites that are formed within them. So this yes. really is a diametrically opposite, the very thing we try to do every day in our schools and as Christian parents. So it's, a, it's not a minor thing by any stretch. It is the no. battleground, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, no, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I kind of it towards by way of kind of what are some of the problems? Again, the really 
speak to this comment in your book where you say, of all the concerns that you have, all of them are dwarfed by one, which is boredom with Christ. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, spoiler alert, I mean, the, 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 the point of my book is that the greatest spectacle in the history of the universe is the spectacle of Jesus Christ crucified, hung up and, and uh, forsaken by earth, forsaken by heaven, arms wide open with mercy to embrace all of his nations to his left, nations to his right. They're hanging on the cross. This is public spectacle 101. I mean, this is uh, for those who couldn't fit into the theater to see bloodshed. Uh, this crucifixion was bloodshed for the masses. This is the m- biggest Roman spectacle that could possibly happen is the crucifixion of someone out on a busy road. And that's where Jesus was crucified for all to see. And that was in a in a turn of events, the greatest spectacle that God has ever orchestrated in the history of mankind is there we see his wrath and his mercy meet in the Son yeah. of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a kind of seeing that's different than the seeing that we're typically accustomed to. You have to see that by faith. You have to see as God sees. And that is, of course, then where the tension comes from, is living for what the gospel has now flipped from reality into unreality and, and seeing what you think is unreal, the things you can't see, and realizing those are the most stable most certain things in the universe. Yeah, it seems it's it's counterintuitive for sure, and yet it is interesting that your point and the gospel's point is that we're not anti-spectacle. Let's don't all put on blindfolds, right. but let's yes. let's recognize that that is the it, it it's a for eyeballs to heart like a quick, we were made for a spectacle exactly Absolutely. exactly yeah yep. great. Well, let's take a quick break. Let's come back and let's carry on with that idea and I'll talk a little bit about some things that we could do to help not fall into that trap of looking at the wrong spectacles. We'll be right back with Tony Rinky. Well, welcome to Basecamp Live's Climber Series on the line with Kaylin Ani. How are you, Kaylin? I'm so well. Thank you, Davies. You are such an encourager. I got this wonderful email from you telling your story. I said, you've got to come on and be a climber. I want to, I want everybody to hear your story. Tell me about how you all, you didn't grow up with classical education. This was a discovery, right? Yeah, my husband and I were both public school all the way. And yeah, as we've, for years, we're considering how we wanted to educate our own children. It's definitely been a process and just decided that things have changed enough in our society. We weren't comfortable with that route. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so, and you guys are in Tacoma, Washington. Yeah. Uh, and, and found the, uh, so your, your discovery of, um, Cordeo school there was, tell me about your school. What, what's the. Yes. It's an amazing little school. We love it. We, there's a preschool basically next door and I had my youngest there and I was homeschooling my daughter in kindergarten and we just weren't, we just weren't feeling great about the options out there. And I started noticing little kids across the courtyard in cute little plaid skirts and ties. And I thought, what, what is that? So that's when I found out they had an elementary school there. And so we enrolled her the next year and I felt like God um, brought to us what we didn't know how to ask for or what to pray for. We didn't know about classical schools. That's That's a great way to say you didn't even know what to ask for. Okay. But, but you discovered it and you're in. So tell me what, is it making a difference and what are you seeing in your children? Um, we see fruit daily. I mean, daily, the vocabulary they have, the interest that they have, the joy they have in learning, the feedback that we get from other people, babysitters, family members, grandparents, people at the store. 
Um, they're constantly saying, wow, your children are so good at asking questions. Well, they, they just speak really intelligently. They look me in the eye. They, um, are so interested in, you know, whatever it is that they happen to be talking about. And we keep looking at each other like, man, you know, we're trying really hard as parents, but this is God's gift to us to give us a school that is in line with our beliefs and that we're not having to undo something that's been taught to them all day that doesn't line up with the Lord. Yeah. That sounds, what, what a true statement. I love how other people see these immediate contrasts and differences. Tell the story about Jane and the, and the Andy Warhol um, comment. I thought that was really insightful. Yes. It was so funny. We were, we were watching the Super Bowl, and there was this really, well, I thought it was an odd commercial on and this guy with this weird hair and unwrapping a hamburger and we were the adults in the room were looking at each other like what is this who is this and and it, he didn't say anything the whole time and we couldn't figure out what was going on and she walks around the corner and she's like oh that's Andy Warhol and he's the artist who did the Campbell soup cans and the coke bottles and this and that and the other and we're all looking at each other <laughs> like oh okay you know this you know, quote unquote, out of date, you know, ancient education just made my daughter the most, you know, relevant, culturally relevant person in the room. Right. And had that happen many times. It's been really funny. I I love that. Especially when the the adults are all scratching their head and there's this child who wasn't even of their generation and they know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And then Jensen, you had told a story about with the Revolutionary War interest, I believe. Yeah, he, um, he's the, total American boy. He loves to play sports and loves to be around people. And, but he really, God has given him a passion for, um, learning and reading. He's a voracious reader. And so this year in third grade, they're going through a revolutionary war history and uh, just a small piece of many things that they're covering. And he has just gotten hooked into that. He has gotten every book at the library. He has, if there's any little specials on TV or anything, we're trying to you know, connect the dots for him. He knows um, if it's a date, like the other day, it was April 18th. And he's like, oh, this is the night of Paul Revere's ride, mom. And (laughs) so now we're going to have his birthdays coming up and it has to be a revolutionary war. And he wears his tricorn hat around and he knows, he knows everything. And, and it'll continue on in other topics too. You know, last year it was all medieval stuff because they were studying medieval history and the joy they have in learning is just it's just absolutely incredible and it just spreads to other areas. Well, I love that. I, you know, thanks for those stories. And I know that uh, that word joy is, is a great reminder because I think sometimes people look at these, uh, this education, they think, gosh, there's just a lot of heavy duty information and it's rigorous and it's tough. And yet what I'm hearing is your kids are just filled with joy and the world is a great place to continue to discover in because of their education. You know, they really are. They love going to school. I mean, they are, they're upset when we, you know, go to the dentist and we're going to be an hour late. Like they want to be there. They don't want to miss out on what's going on. Yeah. And, um, they just, they love to tell us about what they're learning and what's going on. And we are provoked by how much we have learned from them. And I just really continue. I know it, you know, I've heard that saying, like, you're going to wish you <laughs> could go back to school. And I, I really do like on a regular basis feel like wow. I, I feel like my education was a little bit of an injustice because of <laughs> I see what they're doing and I'm, yep. I'm seeing that I sat in on a literature class recently in my daughter's fifth grade and I couldn't, I couldn't believe the conversations they were having, the questions that were being asked from the teacher and from them. I was in the back taking notes on a note card. I mean, it was so, it was so cool. <laughs> and my husband told 
my daughter later, you know, Jane, these are the kind of conversations that I was hoping for mm. that I would have when I was in college in my classes that we never did. That's we never, I never amazing. got to have classes like, you know, discussions like that. And you're having them as a fifth grader. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah. it's true that there's such a capacity within our children when they're put in the right environment. So well, I'm, I love your story, Kaylin. Thank you for uh, writing in and encourage us, encouraging us as, as one out there on this journey with us. And thanks for being a base camp listener. You're pretty faithful out there and they've been listening for a long time. So Thank, Thank you, you so much, Davies, for bringing all of this to us. It's really been life-changing. Well, we really appreciate you're, it. You're quite welcome. Well, blessings to you and your family and, and the team there at Cordeo as you, Cordeo as you uh, continue to do this great work with classical Christian education. Blessings to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back at Basecamp Live here on the line with Tony Rinke. Uh, Tony, in your book, I was saying at the break, I love the fact there are so many great stories. I hope so many people go out and get this book because it's you make a very important point, but you illustrate it really well. Andrew Agassi, I remember back in the day, Mr. Tennis Superstar. Talk about mm-hmm. the point you make in the book as far as image and the spectacle of, his, of him. Yeah, Andre Agassi, of course, was a famous tennis player, even in his teens. So by the time he was 19, he was already being featured in major advertising spots. And one of them was for Canon Camera. Uh, Canon Camera was coming out with a, a new uh, a, a new camera, a new, D- a new um, um, 35 millimeter camera. And so the, the screen, as you watch this film, as, as you watch this advertisement, the, the shutter keeps clicking. So you're seeing Andre Agassi in all these poses and the, the, the shutter is clicking for you, the photographer at home. And at the end of the, the advertisement, Agassi gets out of um, a white Lamborghini and he tilts his sunglasses down and he says, image is everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that caught fire. I mean, that became viral. Image is everything. And so whether he was competing or whether he was in press conferences what began to happen was whether he won or lost, it didn't matter because style is what matters. That's what people took away. So his, his ambition towards winning trophy, trophies and being known as one of the great tennis players in history became secondary to his image, which then began to consume everything. And he talks about this in his autobiography that he really grew irate towards crowds and he became disgruntled towards the press this phrase images everything just became synonymous with who he was and it would it just scoffed at his tennis goals wow. it scoffed at the substance of who he was because images everything if you can lose in style why do you need to win yeah yeah and so he it started to undercut that and he, he it, it really haunted him that is a People fascinating story. This, yeah. Now this would be on his gravestone, images everything. And, and he, he, he took him years to try and escape that. That is so interesting. I mean, he was literally a victim of triviality that he helped perpetuate. It just comes- absolutely. He he says in his autobiography that the 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 line was scripted for him, that it wasn't his line, but n- nevertheless, it yeah. became synonymous with him, yeah. which is what images are. Images yeah. are a separation between substance and appearance. Yeah. If you get kind of technical, sure. And he got caught in the the image separated from the substance and that's right and 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 the point you make which is very convicting is i mean we live in this culture that that claims we can multitask i mean it's really a lie i mean we really can only think about one thing at a time and hopefully everybody's listening to this podcast and thinking about this but the point is attention is this new commodity as you talk about and and so there's this power whatever has our attention has us um and Mm -hmm. so 
how do we, so moving kind of, okay, great, what do we do about it? And I know some folks listening, like, I told my husband I'm never going to let my kid have a smartphone. Like, we're going to have flip phones <laughs> till we're 50. I mean, I know that there is that, yeah. we'll, like, we'll get to the what do you do about it. But you, you referenced 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. So how do we reconcile this tension between living and worshiping an invisible God in a completely visible attention-grabbing world? What do we really, what should we do? Well, the first thing is to realize that it is attention and it's unalleviable, unalleviatable. I mean, it is it is yeah. with us. That's why when I say competing spectacles, we're always going to feel this tension. You know, the the most enduring things in the universe are presently invisible to us, and the most transient things in the universe are presently the things we see on Instagram all day long. Seems so unfair. I mean, it's, it's yeah, the gospel flips yeah. that that paradigm, and so. Um, that's especially true in the age of di- digital images or produced images. Like never before we live inside a mirage of mirrors, a, a sort of mirage of screens that surround us. And that's not to say that all of our images are false or fake, but uh, but the mirage is thinking that our images are the truest and most substantial things in the world. And they're not. And so Paul talks about this over and over and over again in Second Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Those are three chapters as well as any where Paul sets forth this contrast between the half reality that we see with our eyes from the full reality that's invisible from us right now. And, and, you know, this is true of our pain. You know, Paul talks about this light momentary affliction that we can see, which is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what we cannot see. So, you know, we don't look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's the key. That's the spiritual key is looking to the things that are unseen not looking to the things that are seen. That right. is so hard. I mean, that's that's what faith is. Faith is a, faith is a looking as God looks. Faith is a seeing as God sees. Yeah. And so when it comes to suffering, you know, we see the blood, we see the band-aids, we see the surgeries, we see the cancer, we see the radiation treatments, we see the bruises, we see the the we see all these things, but that's all passing away, Paul says. And something eternal is being made for us in our sufferings. So that, you know, while we're here, there's an eternal weight of glory being prepared for us yeah. that, that will far exceed what we can see in the, in those sufferings. And so all through those chapters, you know, it's talking about, you know, like if you're in Christ, you are new creation. You're part of the new creation if you're in Christ. Well, you can't see that. I mean, you don't. We don't go around like buzzing or glowing with light. We don't have halos on our heads, but we're, we're part of the new creation. There's something that has changed. And so we don't look right. at the outward appearance of things. We look at the, the internal things that are the substance. And so, um, I mean, it just goes on and on. When you look at Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 5, and 6, and even I think the book of Colossians is basically his argument against the spectacles of the age compared to right. the true spectacles that are eternal. It is about faith. It is the struggle of faith to see as God sees, not as we see in Facebook. So, And, and I think probably the tension that people might think is, well, I don't disagree with that. I'm, I'm a Christ follower, and I, I'm, I'm completely with you there, Tony, but I'm going to go binge watch Netflix for the next couple days. And I mean, is that really going to change my love for Christ or, and so I guess that's the tension because I think yeah. it'd be easy just to, just to either fall on either side of the ditch, say, well, I, I'm in Christ and I, I can, I can indulge just a little bit. It's not going to hurt anything, or I'm just going to go full out fundamentalist and, and flip phone my way through right. the life. So how do you, yeah, so this is how we need to look at, at worthless yeah. things. Yeah. The most worthless things in the old Testament, of course, are idols 
you know, carved handheld things. We don't really have those explicit kind of idols in our lives today. We have more subtle idols. So worthless things could be idols, rebellion, blatant moral evil against God, things like falsehood, lies, deception. But what's interesting about this category of worthless things is far more broadly in the Old Testament, a worthless thing is something that's false, not necessarily false as in like a bold-faced lie, but anything that's uh, inflated in what it promises to give me, something that will fail to meet inside of me the expectations it's brought. So we can talk about advertising here. We can talk about Netflix. This promise of if you just binge watch more Netflix, you'll be more satisfied. You'll be more fulfilled. Well, that's a worthless thing in the sense that it's making a promise that it can't fulfill. So that's part of what it means to partake and participate in worthless things. And this is why the psalmist in Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. That's a profound statement. Uh, he prays in Psalm 119, Lord, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Sure. But um, so it's this idea that there are worthless things. They don't add any value to us. And those are, they fit within a moral category in the Old Testament. And so hmm. we all have to pray that. I would encourage people to pray this every morning for 30 days. Say, hmm. Lord, turn my eyes from worthless things and see how it changes those Netflix habits. See how it changes your Instagram interests and see how it looks See how it changes the way you look at magazines and billboards and everything. It will. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, it's so complicated because, again, I, as you're saying, I'm thinking about, well, it, I wonder if there's a corollary to, you know, like, food. Like, I, we all know we need to eat our broccoli and, like, well-balanced diet. Yeah. We're also not—you're not condemning the person who looks on a piece of cake. You know I mean? Like, it, it right. does—it's right. okay to watch—you're not saying never look at Netflix or don't take your kids to a Marvel movie. You're just saying, where is the balance of this thing? And are we—and are we— Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so keep, you know, again, by way of just kind of super practicals, I mean, you, you, when you talk about in the book that, you know, the cross renovates our loves and our longings, um, mm -hmm. we talk again a lot in our classical school world about, again, shaping the affections. And I, and I've, yeah. and I think Edwards, it wasn't our day, Edwards and others have talked about this for, for centuries, but if we shape an appetite around to love the things that God loves and the things that God doesn't love don't seem so attractive anymore. So is that kind of the idea? Is what we're reorienting what we have appetite for. Exactly. And it goes back to what you were talking about earlier in the sense that um, in Christ, we find the greatest spectacle in the universe. It is the, it is because we were made for spectacles. We were made to see beauty. We were mm -hmm. made to embrace beauty. And so as Christ becomes that in our lives, then it does expulsively, expulsive is the word, it, it sort of push pushes out the the addiction we have for worthless things, for idols, for yeah. for things that are unhelpful to us. But it's it's not simply by saying, well, I'm going to go on a digital detox and watch, not watch Netflix for a month. Well, that might be part of it, but it, it's it's more about what what truly is going to feed yeah. and saturate your heart. Because, you know, I see journalists all the time. New York Times will pay a journalist for six months to go offline and write about it. Yeah. Well, what ends up happening is that, that writer just gets addicted to watching BCS movies or right, something. I mean, right. some other distraction just fills in for the digital distraction that was left. And so you've got to have a higher pleasure, a greater desire yeah. for Christ. And again, that's the work of the Spirit. That's what make, makes parenting so daunting is that you're trying to do supernatural things. Right. You want your, your child to see the beauty of Christ, which is something that only God by his Holy Spirit could ever bring about. But you pray that and you work towards that and it becomes a, a priority because 
once once we see Christ in his beauty, then that is what pushes out all the yeah. other worthless things. But there is value at a very practical level in a digital detox. Mm-hmm. And my son goes to a, a camp every year and, you know, of course, cell phones are not at this camp. And yeah. he'll come back yeah. after 10 days and go, wow, I forgot how good it is just to <laughs> sit and pray. And it's like, that's great. You have to, but it does take kind of some extreme and, you know, this is, it's the spiritual discipline. So it sounds like in super practical, maybe talk through with your family, think through we need to do a digital detox or how did, what is that? What, what advice do you have on just like really practical things to help awaken that sense of, boy, I've, I've kind of gotten out of, out of kilter here and I need to, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, that's really good. About a year ago, I wrote a very long feature article for Desiring God called 12 tips for parenting in the digital age. And there I went through a number of different things that I've done with my own family and with my wife to um, uh, sort of steward digital media more carefully um, in looking at, at my own abuses and then seeing like, how yeah. can I, how can I help my kids learn these things? So, uh, 12 tips for parenting in the digital age is something that I think a, a lot of parents have told me is really helpful so, for them. One of them is talking about stair-stepping technology over the years into, uh, a, a child's life and doing that with care. That's one of the points in that article. But yeah, there's definitely times where we have to step back from digital media. I typically try to coincide that with, um, with family vacations. Uh, whether it's a personal detox season of seven to 10 days where I go offline or whether it's encouraging my whole family to do it, we typically will overlap, overlap that with a family vacation. Mm. Um, so that's one way to do it. But it's hard. You know, the, the first day is hard. The <laughs> second day is hard. The third day is you start to feel numb a little bit. But, but by the four, fourth and fifth day, you're, you, <laughs> you can think again. You can right. dream again. You can... Uh, you just, it's, wow. it's freeing, but it does take some time. Did, I got to ask, did you do a digital detox when you wrote this book? Uh, did I do, and you this, know, I just to, just to have that clarity yeah. to think, I mean, it seems like you would have had to, to some extent. Book writing for me really clarifies my life in the sense that, um, it, when I'm really focused on writing a book project, it, it, it really expunges all the other uh, digital media coming into my yeah. to my eyes. I don't need. I don't have time for it. So yeah. yeah, it's a form of digital detox for sure. And I wanted this book to be written in a way that uh, uh, a high schooler, a uh, college student, even an adult could could look at this book and read it. It's mm. short. It's to the point. And hopefully, for those who are taking a digital detox of five, six, seven days, this is a perfect size book Great. to sort of realign the affections and realign the eyes to see as as God sees. Oh, Tony, thanks. Yeah, this is really good. So you've mentioned the article on the just practical steps with with the technology. Tell folks where they can find those resources and, and the book and, and more about your work. Yeah, so 12 Tips for Parenting in the Digital Age is at DesiringGod.org. You can just Google the title uh, with my name. Um, I did um, just sort of a little history of who iGen is, which is kind of this age of teens growing up and what makes them different from other generations. And then uh, 12 tips that my wife and I have implemented with digital media. So you can find that there. I work for Desiring God as the communications director and as a senior writer. Um, and there you can find uh, a number of my articles that I've done, some interviews I've done with John Piper and the Ask Pastor John podcast series on smartphones. So you can find those. Um, but otherwise, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. Yeah. I am in social media. I do find it a useful way to connect <laughs> with people, and so it's, right. it's that's a whole nother tent. That's a whole nother podcast we talk about about how to yeah. how to influence for good while using a, a platform that can be used for ill. Isn't and, that um, interesting? Yeah. Well, that, I, I yeah. love I love that you're willing to walk the razor's edge, Tony, because it's definitely where we all live, and 
these are competing spectacles and, yeah. and we've got to just go at it wisely. Well, thank you for your uh, encouragement and these great thoughts. And I know our listeners will be eager to jump onto your resources and love to have you back to talk about some of these other works you're doing. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Yeah. Thanks for the chat. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Basecamp Live. You know, raising the next generation of young people isn't easy, but we'd like to offer you some opportunities to join your fellow travelers in this journey of ancient future education. Hey, Kelly, you know what's really exciting? We just added to the website, basecamplive.com, a whole section that's uh, designed around getting the word out. It's called Start Here. If you're new, it tells you how to get fully subscribed to it. If you're a school leader, um, you can you can link on to your school website and kind of get updates every time we do a new show is released. It appears on the school website. That's kind of that's kind of exciting. And yeah. one of the things that I'm really excited about is this new climbers idea that we're putting together. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just simply we want to hear stories. I mean, the, what, what I'm humbled by are the number of people literally around the globe who are saying there's a better way to raise the next generation and they're jumping in whatever their context is. And we want to know what you're doing and kind of how you discovered this. And we're just going to create some kind of smaller little vignettes of stories of people. And uh, so, yeah, info at BasecampLive.com. Let us know what your story is. Yeah, we don't have to do this alone. Info at BasecampLive.com. That sounds great. All right. Thanks for joining us and see you at the next episode.